Amen. Amen. Well, for the last seven or eight weeks here at Rio, if you've been with us, you know that we have been talking about what moves us as people. So what is it that grabs hold of our hearts? What is it that really moves us? And we've said, we've had this kind of foundational premise uh, that says it begins with God. In other words, if God exists and if he is in fact the God of the Bible, then by definition, necessarily it is the case that there is nothing and no one more moving in all of the universe than God. Like it cannot possibly be other than that. But we've said that you don't know that until you see him. However, when you see him as he's revealed to us in his word, and we as believers in Jesus, as Christians, believe that the word of God is the revealed word of God, like it is the self-revelation of God himself, as you see him as he's revealed at times in nature, sunsets, sunrises, mountain vistas, ocean vistas, all of these things that are the handiwork of his hands that speak of what he's like and of, of who he is and of what his capacities are, that in moments like that, guys, you are moved. You're just, you're moved and you're moved to worship this God. You're moved into community with the people of God. We've talked about all of that stuff, but last week we started the conversation of, okay, but you're also moved out into the world that was created by this God and that you're to give your life away for after the fashion of this God. And you're moved out into the world not as an ought to, not as, not as a, oh, I have to. Not as a, well, I guess this is what it means to be a good Christian. Not as, I'm obligated, therefore I must. Well, I guess this is what we're doing next. I mean, it's not that at all. You're moved out into the world as the overflow of the love of God that arises in your heart when you see him for who he really is, when you see him for what he really is, and when you authentically experience his love poured into you through Jesus. When you realize what he's done for you in Christ, your heart changes, and you love this God. And then out of the overflow of that love, it starts to pour into other relationships. And so it pours, first of all, into your family. And we talked about that last week. Moses came to us, and what did he say? He said, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What, what does that mean? It means that God exists, he's the God of the Bible, and he's the only God out there. And in light of who he is and in light of what he's done for you in Jesus, Moses says, love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then if I can just summarize the rest of what he says, he says, beginning with your family. And today, we're going to say, oh, and extending to your neighbors. And the reason that we're going to do that is because when you get to the New Testament, you hear very similar language. What is the first and greatest commandment? Jesus affirms this. It is love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. But then what's the second commandment? It is love your neighbor as yourself. And we're good at that, aren't we? Loving ourselves, that is. Love your neighbor as yourself. Which just leaves us with one question. Who is my neighbor? Because if I'm going to have to do that, I need to know who I'm supposed to do that with. And that is exactly the question that Jesus has asked in Luke chapter 10. And in response to the question, he answers it with a story. And it's one of the most famous stories, arguably, actually, the most famous story ever told. It is the story of the Good Samaritan. So raise your hand if you've heard of the story of the Good Samaritan. Come on, it's okay. All right, those of you with shoulder problems didn't help. Didn't, you, you've heard of it, right? I mean, you know this story. 
And not only do you know this story, but like people all over the world know this story. Christians, non-Christians, doesn't matter. People of all different faiths, people of no faith have heard this story, which as a kind of interesting side note is sort of what you would expect if Jesus is who we really believe that he is. Because we really believe that Jesus is not like any other man. And in fact, he's not even a really, really extraordinary man. We believe that he's God-made man. Okay, if God became a man, would he not tell the most enduring stories? Jesus does. So who is my neighbor? Jesus answers it with this. He says that a man, and it's a Jewish man in this story, he's speaking to a Jewish first century audience, and he chooses someone just like them. That's the idea. He says a Jewish man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he says that he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he means that quite literally. Here are some things that these people that he was speaking to in the first century understood that's helpful to us to understand if we're going to get this story. They knew, these people, that this road, which literally existed, was 17 miles long. They knew that as you walk down this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, you literally walk down. You descend like 3,500 feet. And they knew that this road was notoriously dangerous. People were so regularly robbed and beaten and murdered and left for dead and all that kind of stuff on this particular road that the locals referred to it as the way of blood. So that's a nice street to live on. And so what else then did they know? They knew that this is a road you should never go on by yourself. And yet Jesus, the master storyteller, the greatest storyteller ever, has this guy on the road all by himself, which makes what happens next very predictable. For it says that this man then fell among robbers who did what robbers do. They stripped him and they beat him and then they departed, leaving him helpless and naked and bleeding and half dead, but not entirely dead. And then Jesus says, now by chance, a priest was going down that same road. And what does that inspire in your heart? Hope for this guy that's been left on the side of the road. Surely he's going to help. But he doesn't help. It says, and when he saw... His helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish brother, he passed by on the other side. Probably pretty quickly. You know, he probably saw this guy and thought, hmm, I wonder if the robbers are still around. So likewise, Jesus says a Levite, another Jewish religious man, when he came to the place and just like the other guy, saw his helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish brother, Pass by on the other side too, which is striking, isn't it? But why is this striking? It's striking because there is an expectation of religious people. And what is the expectation? It is that, my goodness, we're going to be merciful and helpful to those who are in need. Don't you think? I think that's particularly true for Christians. Christians and non-Christians alike sort of look at Christians and go, well, surely you guys are going to be merciful because if they have any understanding of Christianity at all, they know that we believe at least that we have been made the objects of the mercy of God. Objects of the mercy of Christ, which mercy, incidentally, is available to all. So should that not make us merciful? Is the mercy of Jesus not a transformational kind of mercy? Is the love of Jesus not a love that lays hold of us and makes us more loving? Is the grace of Jesus not a grace that makes us more gracious? just, Just organically, just by the very fact that it exists in our lives, that we've experienced it authentically, it, 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 it must. And, and more than that, I, I think the rest of the world goes, hey man, you've got like, you know, the most popular story ever told in the Good Samaritan. And I kind of at least have a little understanding of what it means. 
of what it is. So I think the expectation is actually pretty reasonable. It's the same expectation we felt as we're beginning to read the story and listen to what Jesus is saying. The priest came, we're like, right on, he's going to help. No, he doesn't help. Okay, the Levite, for sure he's going to get. No, he doesn't do it either. And here's the deal. There is so much good that comes out of this community. There are so many selfless acts of help and mercy in this church that it's overwhelming to me. But there are times in my life at least, and I would expect in yours, where we come across somebody and they are just a hot mess and we're just like, you know what? This one is someone else's challenge. This one is for someone else. And so when you begin to process the story and really meditate on it, as I hope you did in your personal worship this week, you kind of go from being really disappointed with the priest and Levi to kind of going, I don't know, there are some sets of circumstances under which maybe I can understand this. Like, I don't know, Tom, I mean, maybe, for example, they came upon this guy and they thought he was dead. I mean, he's half dead. He's left for dead. Maybe they thought he was dead. And aren't they priests and, you know, don't the Levites and they all work in the temple and aren't there some laws or something that Moses said that if you touch something that's dead, you then become ceremonially unclean and then you have to go through this whole ritual to become ceremonially clean and if you're unclean, you can't work in the temple and maybe, you know, they're going to work and they're just thinking, well, this is somebody else's problem. I can't touch a dead thing, then I can't work in the temple. But wait, Jesus doesn't have them going to the temple. He has them coming from the temple. Oh, he's good. He is so good. It's remarkable. And more than that, there was a law in their day that said if you came upon a dead corpse, you were required to bury it. So if they thought he was dead, why why didn't they bury him? And you say, well, maybe, you know, they just thought this guy had, you know, finally gotten what he had coming to him. I mean... Who knows how this guy has lived and how foolish he's been. I mean, everybody knew, don't walk this road alone, right? And apparently that's exactly what this guy did. And so, you know, maybe they just made a kind of a judgment call in the moment. And they said, I don't know, maybe it would be good for this guy to experience the consequences of his own stupidity, of his own foolishness, of this ridiculous behavior that put him on this road. Maybe it would be good for the whole community if this guy experience the consequences of this. By the expense of one, many are spared of this kind of foolishness. A lesson goes forth. Okay, I don't know what they were thinking, but here's what I think, because I've experienced it in here. I think sometimes that's what we do. I think sometimes we look at somebody and they are a hot mess, and we just make all kinds of assumptions about how they got to where they're at. Sometimes those assumptions, incidentally, are spot on but they're not always. And because what we're hoping to do is disregard them because this is going to be costly. I mean, this is going to take a lot of time. This is going to take a lot of emotional energy. This might, you know, cost me financially. Like, this is not a simple, quick fix. We, in a sense, blame them for where they're at because maybe they've been foolish or we assume that. Or maybe they've behaved in a not real intelligent fashion or we assume that. And all the while, here's what we forget, that we are all of us human beings, and that as such, we are all of us made of the same substance, every one of us. And that under just the right set of circumstances, guys, any one of us could end up in exactly the same place that person is. And Jesus doesn't leave this open as a possibility. 
And the reason I say that is because Jesus, the master storyteller, has the priest and the Levite traveling down the same road all by themselves as well. He takes it all away. He leaves there no excuse. And then he says something utterly shocking, at least to the people who were standing there originally listening to him tell the story. He says, but a Samaritan. Okay, so the Samaritan, you know this, is going to be the helpful one. But why does that shock anybody? Because the Samaritans hated and terrorized the Jews, and the Jews hated and terrorized the Samaritans. I mean, they were inveterate enemies. So here comes a Samaritan, an inveterate enemy of the Jews, and as he journeyed, he came to where his helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish enemy was. And when he saw him, he had compassion, and notwithstanding the fact that he very well may have been in danger. The man's half dead. He's not all the way dead. How long have the robbers been gone? Are the robbers still around? Have the robbers left this man to die on the side of the road as bait for guys like me to show up and help, and then they come get me? Like, how is this going to play out? Notwithstanding the fact that this guy is going to be a project. It's going to take time. It's going to take money. It's going to be really, really taxing. Notwithstanding the fact that he's a Samaritan, and no one, Jew or Samaritan, would have blamed him for just continuing on. It says that when he saw him, he had compassion, and he personally went to him. He didn't say, all right, so I'm going to deal with this by means of committee, meaning I'm going to form a committee, and then you guys go deal with this. He doesn't call up the Jewish Federation in Jerusalem and say, hey, you know, I don't really feel obligated to do this, but one of your people is somewhere between mile marker 9 and 10, and, uh, and you might want to hurry. You know, like, he's, he doesn't look good doesn't do that. He doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to let this guy die, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to lobby the Roman Senate. I mean, good grief, we've got a, a road called the way of blood. What kind of a, a nation, what kind of a government do you people have here? Not against that. But he gets personally involved. He personally went to him, and then he got down in the dirt on his hands and knees, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he, he somehow got his arms underneath this sweaty, naked, bleeding guy and lifted him up and put him on his own animal that he had no doubt been riding while he now walks. And then he pulls out his phone and he calls his wife. And it's not a fun phone call. It's not fun at all. Because he says, well, honey, you know, I, I, I know that we have plans for tonight and I know, I know your mom's coming over and the kids, and the grandkids, and I, I, I know that, you know, we were supposed to do some kind of special stuff, and, and I had planned, as you know, to be there, but I, I, I'm not going to be able to be there, and, and the reason that I'm not going to be able to be there is that I was, I'm walking down the, the way of blood, and I came around this bend, and then I saw this guy naked and bleeding and helpless and, 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 and Jewish, and, and, and I, I had to stop, and I, yeah, I said he was Jewish. I, I was kind of hoping you missed that. Yeah, no, you don't need to go down the list. I know what they did to your grandfather. I know what they did to our son. I know what they said to you when you were a little girl. I, I know all about my business partner, my cousin and friend. Get the idea? But here's the deal. When I saw him, I couldn't pass him by. So I'm not going to make it. Hangs up. 
calls his secretary. Doesn't go much better, really. Says, hey, listen, I know we've got a big meeting tomorrow. I know the whole company's got a lot riding on this thing. I know you had to move heaven and earth to get everybody's schedules coordinated so that we can make it. And I was planning to be there, as you well know, but then I came around the bend and I saw this helpless, naked, bleeding Jewish man, and he needed help, and it was just so evident to me, and so I, I picked, yeah, I said that he was, I know, listen, I had this conversation with my wife, you can call her, actually, don't, don't do that, that's not a good idea, don't do that, don't, don't call her, but here's the thing, I, I couldn't pass him by, I, I don't know what to tell you, I, so I'm not going to make it, reschedule. Jesus says, then he set this helpless, naked, bleeding, dying enemy of his on his own animal, and he brought him to an end and took care of him, the idea being, all night long. And the next day, before he obligated himself any further, because he was a smart guy, he got the full name of this guy, his date of birth, his social security number, he ran a credit check, he had him sign a promissory note, he doesn't do any of those things. There's no self-protection in here at all. It's kind of crazy. It says the next day he took out two denarii, enough for room and board for two weeks, And then he gave them to the innkeeper, and these people in Jesus' day all understood that innkeepers were notoriously dishonest, and then he blindly obligates himself to this guy. It's like he drops his American Express on him and says, well, we'll see what this costs, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Wow. And you say, well, all right. So what happens next? I don't know. It's not very satisfying, is it? You're like, well, did the guy live at least? Like, did he, did he make it? Like, what happened with this guy? No idea. Now, hang on a second. So, like, what about the Samaritan? So, like, does the Samaritan get be repaid? Like, does that happen? Does he get repaid? Like, does, the, does, the, does the, his enemy ever send him a note of thanks? Like, do they ever get together? Maybe their families meet and then they become friends and it becomes this beautiful picture of reconciliation and redemption and all that. And the whole community celebrates and then they have a party and they name a day after this. And I mean, like, what happens in the rest of the story? There is no rest of the story. It's over. The story's done. That's it. It's ended unless it finds life in us. Unless it lives on in me. And that's clearly what it's intended to do. Jesus looks at this man who started the whole story off by saying, well, you know, look, I I get that I'm supposed to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as myself, but I'm a little freaked out by that. I'm not going to lie. So I'm trying to draw some boundaries here. Who is my neighbor? Having told the story, Jesus then looks at that man And he says, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And then this guy looks at Jesus and says, well, I'm sorry, but that wasn't my question. Like, my question was, who is my neighbor? He doesn't do that because he knows the question's been answered. You know the question has been answered. So who is my neighbor and who is your neighbor? It's not anyone on any road of life that finds themselves in harm's way or in need. It's just, the, for me, the people on my road of life. And for you, the people on yours. That's it. And so Jesus says, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And in response, this man simply said, 
the one who showed mercy. You can't even say the Samaritan. And then Jesus said to him and to us, okay, so then you go and do likewise. There it is. But why should we go and do likewise? Well, if you're a believer in Jesus, it's because you understand that that is exactly what God has done for you. He's been your good neighbor. I mean, the reality about my life and your life and everyone else's, it's not like it's unique to one person. And there's forgiveness for all of this. It's like, this is where I'm going, so this is good. But the reality is that none of us have loved the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength and our neighbor as ourself. Good grief. That's a tall order for natively selfish people. I'll tell you, the person we have loved best, each one of us, is the one we see in the mirror. Isn't it? That's the one we fret over the most. It's the one we're concerned about the most. It's the one we try to get everybody else to serve the most. We all do it. It's okay. We can be honest. And here's where that's left us, spiritually speaking. Helpless, naked, bleeding, and not just half dead, but actually dead. And yet God, in love, even for us, put himself on our road. He came to us in the person of Jesus. He took upon himself our humanity. He entered into this world as one of us. Why? To take our place in the ditch that we ourselves have put ourselves in so that we can be free of it. That's what the cross is all about. Christ takes upon himself all of our failures and selfishness and everything else. All of the ways we have not loved God the way we ought or our neighbor's or anyone else. And he suffers and dies for the whole of it in our place that we might be free. And here's what that freedom inspires. When it really lays hold of you, that freedom inspires love, love for God that then begins to spill over into our families and then to our neighbors. And in our neighbors, I include our literal neighbors. And I realize that's, you know, maybe a little more narrow definition than what Jesus is dealing with in this story. But you need to realize that in the first century, guys, they were all good neighbors to their actual neighbors. They really were. Like, it was a Jewish community. They all lived together. Everybody lived and died together. Everybody helped everybody out. What Jesus is talking about here, oh, man, if you saw your actual neighbor on the side of the road, no way you don't pick him up. What Jesus is trying to get these guys to do is to expand their definition beyond the norm but what, what's happened in our society, it's, it's kind of the opposite. You know, so we see people in need, and they don't usually live next door to us. Usually they're perfect strangers to us, and we go to help them. We rush to help with our volunteer hours, and we rush to help with our dollars. And we should, by the way, do both of those things. That's a wonderful thing. We'll talk about more of it next week. But we've grown so insular in the way that we live that Many of us don't even know the people who actually live like across the street or next door or behind us or whatever the case may be, which provides us with a great opportunity to get to know our neighbors and love our neighbors. And you say, yeah, but I'm pretty sure my neighbor's not in a ditch. Like, I don't know that he has any needs, but I guess I would say in response to that that maybe it depends on how you define need. Because if God exists and he's the God of the Bible, then everybody needs Jesus. We all need forgiveness. We all need life. We all need healing. We all need his spirit and his wisdom. We need to be transformed. There's need there. 
And that's not the reason to be a good neighbor. It's not a bait and switch where, you know, you're a good neighbor to somebody and you hope that maybe as a result you get to talk to them about Jesus, but then if that doesn't go well, then you move on to the next. No, no, no. You're a good neighbor because the love of Christ has captured you. And you're a loving person. And so no matter who they are or what they believe or what they ever come to believe, you're their good neighbor because that just comes out of your heart and soul. But I will tell you, That as you actually get to know people, as you begin to let them into your life, as they begin to let you into their life, it's pretty normal at some point to talk about something that is so central to you. Just is. In fact, I I think that like if I was not a Christian and you were my neighbor and we were good friends and and I got to know you and I trust you and you trust me and, and I knew that this was a part of your life, but, you know, maybe I'd be relieved if you didn't talk to me about it. But I'd also think it was a little bit odd at some point, like if I knew enough about Christianity to know that, okay, so you believe there's a God and a heaven and a hell and sin and Jesus and forgiveness and life and all of this wonderful stuff. And I'd be going, hey, man, you going to tell me about this? I don't know. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you some practical steps to take, okay? So we sent out this uh, block map. We sent it out in our personal worship early last week. Uh, it's on the app. It's on the website. Uh, and then I think Ryan sent it out with his email on Friday. And if you look at it, you can see you are here. So you are the center block, okay? That's your house. That's your home. What I'd love for you to do is maybe take some time even this afternoon while it's kind of fresh in your mind and sit down. And if you're married or whatever, then you sit down with the person that you're married with and you just kind of go, okay, so who are the neighbors that live all around us? Like, what is their name? What, 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 what do we know about them? And not like, you know, you look out the window and go, they live in a yellow house. That's not it. Okay, that's not the answer, all right? You know, it's Bill and Jane Smith, and, and they have three kids, and a dog and a cat. And their oldest son goes to the University of Florida, but we like him anyway. You know, you say stuff like that. You just write that in there. Pray more for him, you know? Bill is an engineer, and Jane works for the county. She's from Ohio. Her dad died two years ago. Her mom comes and spends the month of February each year with them. Get the idea? See how many you can do that with. Some of you who are extroverts can do that for all of these things because that's just, you know, that's kind of like who you are. And then the rest of us will discover that there are some empty blocks. And you know what? That's okay. You know what that represents? Opportunity. It's an opportunity So then you take this and you put it on your refrigerator and you begin to pray for the people around you, the ones that you know and the ones that you don't know. And you pray that the Lord would introduce you to them, you know, and maybe remind you of their name, which can be kind of awkward. It happens to me all the time, like every Sunday and pretty much everywhere I go. I'm terrible with names. So, you know, if this guy's been living next to you for 10 years, you might have to just kind of eat the fact that you don't remember his name and go over there and go, okay, so here's the deal. I'm terrible with names. I've known your name for 10 years. It's in here. It will come to me at 3 a.m., but that's not helpful now. So just remind me. I'm Tom. My wife's name is Beth, and you are Jim. Okay, that's it. That's it, Jim. And your wife's name is... Yeah, and then I actually put it in my phone as we walk away. I'm not kidding. I put it in my notes section of my phone. Like, I keep a list of names. Various neighbors. All right, second way to get to know your neighbors. Go for a walk in your neighborhood. Do it regularly, do it at the same time every time you go. So what you're going to do is you're going to run into the people who walk in your neighborhood at the same time every time you go. You'll get to know them. You'll get to know their dogs. 
I know the names of people's dogs in my neighborhood. I'm not kidding. One dog is named Sonny. One dog is named Percy, which is a Harry Potter thing. But I made that connection, and there was sort of a whole level of relationship that I went to with that person. It was amazing. It was like, felt like she was my sister, just like that. But seriously, I mean, we've lived in our house for 18 and a half years. My wife, Beth, walks every day, pretty much, and I walk with her maybe a couple times a week. And we've just gotten to know these people because we walk in the neighborhood and we're reasonably friendly, not really very extroverted, kind of moderately introverted people who stop and talk because that's more important than the little bit of aerobic exercise that we're getting from actually walking. You know, around Christmas, you know, we make up these little plates of cookies. And by we, I mean Beth. She makes up these plates. I eat cookies. I don't make them. And everybody's good with that. And then, you know, we... We don't package them. She packages them, and then we put them in a bag that I carry. That is my part. I do that. I'm helpful. And then, like, yeah, you're welcome. And and then we'll, you know, like, I don't know, six of them or something on our little walking route, and we'll put them on their doorstep with a little Christmas card and maybe an invitation to the Christmas Eve services, those kinds of things. It's just little stuff. Another thing you can do is go volunteer at the school in your neighborhood. I'm sure there is one. I'll bet they would love that. Another thing you can do is just go down to the park in your neighborhood and find out what's going on and and be a part of that. There are a thousand ideas and ways that you and I can get out of our houses and actually meet our neighbors and get to know them. Because when you see God for who he really is, for what he's really like, and you are transformed by his love and grace and mercy and kindness, he inspires within you a heart for other people, like the love comes out, not perfectly, not always, and there's grace for that, guys. There's forgiveness for that. It's what the cross is all about. But the more you become like Jesus, the more outwardly focused you are, the more selfless you become, the more people others oriented you become, and it flows into your family, and then to the neighbors, every hurting person on your path. But what about your actual neighbors? So there's your challenge. Who is your neighbor, like on the graph? Go meet them. Invite them to dinner, have a barbecue, bring them all together, whatever if you're crazy. But seriously, go love your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, we're, we're even here because of your goodness and because of your grace. Lord, we have not, and confess it freely, loved you the way we should. We have not loved other people the way we should. My goodness, we haven't even loved ourselves the way we should. And yet you are perfect love and perfect mercy and perfect grace. And that you put yourself on our path in the person of Jesus Christ. That is an overwhelming reality. But Lord, we receive that reality and all that Jesus did for us in taking his infinitely righteous life his infinitely valuable life and sacrificing it freely and willingly in love for us so that all of our failures and the debt they incur may be taken away, washed over and have that debt paid. Let that reality of your grace grab hold of our heart 
Let that kind of love take hold of our heart and inspire within us a love for you that flows over into the lives of other people. Do this, we pray, for your glory and for your grace, for the good of your kingdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.